saying, Welcome to Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen. Yes, okay. Thank you, Nick. So this is our eighth episode, our seventh person. And we're very honored, actually, to have Nick Moonbridge with us here today, uh, who has not only a very interesting legal career, but a very interesting life with various things he's done. Uh, and we're going to discuss some of both. Uh, to start out, and uh, I've done this with everybody, let's go back a little bit to your childhood. Uh, oh, first, what I want to say, we just want to say, recognize that Don Nunnard uh, died in the last day or two, and uh, what a, an incredible person he has been to the, the patent bar. Yes, Don was very much a giant of the patent bar uh, who um, was really one of the leading figures when I wandered into the field some 35 years ago and has been, was ever since, and... Uh, I believe that he had argued something like 125 appeals in the, the most federal, in the federal circuit, the most of anybody, and or at least certainly the most of anybody in the patent area. And also that, interestingly, he was a member of the commission created by President Carter that uh, ultimately led to the creation of the federal circuit. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, he's he, it's, it's, he's an amazing person. I I came to know him very late in his life, but uh, everything about him has been quite remarkable. And he's a very, on top of that, very nice guy. He absolutely was and remained uh, greatly interested and active in the field of patent law. Uh, one of the last times I saw him was at the most recent uh, international IP conference when uh, uh, I found myself sitting next to him during which conference the, was this? It was the conference organized by uh, a very illustrious professor at Fordham by the name of Hansen, and, uh, and and probably one of the best conferences in the universe, if not the best. Uh, clearly, uh, one of the best in the universe, and certainly the best on the planet Earth. Okay, you were going to say something about him. About I just remember sitting there, uh, finding myself next to Don this probably six months ago and getting into a conversation about one of the finer points of patent law with him. Uh, and his mind was as sharp as, as yeah, it had ever and been. It, and his energy level was actually quite remarkable. And I think he was 88 when he died. So uh, it's, it's a big loss uh, for everyone personally involved and also for the patent bar and patent law. Okay, uh, so you grew up in Birmingham, England, which is part of the Midlands, correct? Yes, or as I would say, the Midlands. Midlands, yes, all right, yes, that'd be correct, Midlands. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. I mean, what is it compared, what would be in the United States like Birmingham is? Well, that, um, it was the Rust Belt. And so it, where I grew up, uh, uh, and I, I wasn't born there, and I, we moved there when I was about three, uh, which turned out to be too old to pick up the local accent. Um, and uh, Fortunately. And I, uh, perhaps fortunately, although growing up, um, the uh, people would always regard me as this um, fancy southerner who was kind of putting on airs and must feel that he was better than everybody else. But you were, and that did describe you, actually. Uh, I, uh, no, I'm joking. Yes. Uh, Hugh himself has experienced this, so he knows <laughs> of what I speak. 
but the uh, the area where I grew up um, had uh, was still uh, and had traditionally been a manufacturing area, a lot of heavy industry, um, in, you know, metal making things out of metal, and uh, it had been uh, it had thrived during the Victorian era when it really uh, was kind of like the Silicon Valley of England. And then uh, it had also not been hit hard during the Great Depression, unlike much of the rest of the country. But in the era when I was um, a child, it was experiencing hard times. And particularly uh, in my teenage years, um, there, it, the industry was very much in a state of decline. And where is it today? I think it... it that stabilized and maybe even bounced back a little, uh, but it's still the town that I grew up in is is very much one that is um, kind of down on its luck. Are your parents still there? They are. Yep, and they um, still live in the house that they had when I was a child. Um, but for example, that town voted something like seventy thirty in favor of Brexit, which I think you could take as a sign of um, dissatisfaction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Okay, uh, your, mo your mom was a humanities professor and your father was a science professor, which usually the two don't meet, don't even date. So what was going on there? Well, they, you say professors, they were uh, really teachers more at the secondary school level, but okay. they did. Um, there was a, a constant debate in the house. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say which is better, but uh, there was always a kind of back and forth between um, the uh, the humanities and the arts on one side and sciences on the other, and uh, with the attendant uh, um, kind of uh, views and prejudices that one might imagine, always in a good-natured way, but the sense that um, uh, of for, on my father's part, for example, that people who studied um, literature did so only because they weren't smart enough to study science, and uh, on my mother's side, the sense that um, people who studied science couldn't write a sentence. So, did you take sides as a as a child? Um, I, I actually tried not to. Uh, um, you know, it was it was a delicate situation, but uh, um, I would prefer not to. And uh, in fact, I think you know this that um, the the reason that I went to study law was because it wasn't science or humanities, and so it was in some ways a neutral pick. Uh, brothers or sisters? I have two brothers, and they both uh, both studied science. Yeah, and uh, where are they now? Um, they both live in England. One of them uh, has uh, works for uh, the tech consulting firm Gartner, uh, and he's um, he's basically a, a high level tech what, consultant. What part of England is he? he? He lives not far from my parents, about ten okay. miles away, and the other one lives uh, outside of London and works for uh, a subsidiary of Schlumberger, uh, and he's, he's a geologist. And um, I think at this point he mostly manages people, but what he has done historically is uh, uh, analyze data and say either you know, do drill for oil or don't drill for oil, uh, which okay. uh, turns out to be complicated. So at some point, or probably right after high school, you went to LSE and uh, studied law and got an LLB, correct? Correct. Uh, and you could have gotten 
a lot of different things and still not had to choose between your parents. How did you choose law? Um, uh, I actually had an, uh, um, uh, a relative, an uncle, uh, an American, uh, lived in New York, who uh, had was a lawyer by training, although he then, uh, after practicing law for a while, became a political science professor. Um, but it was, I think, through talking to him that I became interested in this. He wrote a lot about um, constitutional law and democracy and things of that nature, and that appealed to me and got me thinking about it, and that probably started the chain of events that led me to pick law. So, so how was the effect of uh, the experience at LSC uh, it was on you? Was it like, wow, this is great, or uh, maybe it's great, or...? Uh, I think at that point it was more maybe it's great. I mean, it, it, there were parts of law that appealed to me intellectually, but the idea of doing it for a living, I don't think at that stage of my life was something that I looked at and said, wow, that's awesome. So you get a degree and then you travel the world for three years or four years or something? Some number of years, right, that uh, for whatever reason, uh, when I got my degree, uh, I and my then girlfriend decided that it would be good to see the world. And uh, that led to me selling my possessions such as they were and buying a one-way ticket to Rio de Janeiro and spending, I think it was two years in Brazil. And you, your girlfriend went with you? She did, yes. Did she have any say in this or did you choose it together or what? We chose it together. And uh, we, uh, we, she certainly had a say in it. I, um, I think it was probably more her idea than mine, but uh, one way or another, it was a joint decision. Okay. And uh, what were you doing there? Well, we arrived there. Uh, I think we thought that we would teach English, and in fact, that is mostly what I ended up doing because if you don't speak the language, mm. it's hard to do other things. Um, and uh, uh, but it turned out to be harder than we had expected to to line up that kind of work, and uh, took a while. So um, we we spent some short amount of time in Rio, decided we didn't like that, and then went to a city that uh, is about a thousand miles north of Rio, called Salvador, uh, and um, settled there. And her parents have hated you ever since. Um, uh, well, I don't think her parents cared that much about it. And the um, uh, she, uh, she she we split up, right? And, and not to put too fine a point on it, she dumped me um, Christmas Day, nineteen eighty one. Uh, uh, I'm sure she had good reason to do that, but the uh, uh, that was. Uh, uh, sticks in my mind for some reason, right? What I would normally say about that is it turns out that if you're in a relationship that's not working too well, the way to fix it is not to go to a foreign country where you don't know anybody <laughs> and have only one another for company. Uh, and uh, so uh, we we parted ways and she went back to, uh, to England and I stayed there for um, some while longer and uh, um, did end up being able to make a living teaching English and uh, uh, ultimately, um, ultimately, you said, mm -hmm. I think I might want to be a lawyer, but you went to the U.S. rather than back to England. Well, so I had, um, uh, the way I recall this was um, I was leaving Brazil and I traveled uh, north 
through uh, a lot of very remote parts of Brazil and then through the Amazon jungle. So it was an interesting journey up, wow. up the river in small planes and small boats. You know, actually, your autobiography, have you started that? Uh, uh, who would want to read this? Right. Let's uh, do, we'll see if this podcast attracts any attention. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, um, and I, I uh, my plan was to travel north now for some reason. As I remember this, um, I had, was the, the, the beneficiary, I was very lucky, of a small bequest from uh, a family friend. Uh, but the way I remember it was I had to go to New York to get the money. And so uh, I was making my way uh, north, um, uh, and I actually arrived in Miami uh, with uh, about a couple hundred dollars in my pocket and um, then traveled on to, to New York and uh, to pick up this money and also stay with my, my relatives here. And uh, that set in motion a chain of events that has resulted in me living here for the last 35 years. Yeah. Uh, now, you started out as a paralegal. Is that because that's the only job you could get at that point? So what happened was um, uh, I met my wife, who was then studying, um, still in, in getting her bachelor's degree. And uh, we did a kind of transatlantic relationship for a few months. Oh, hold, hold, hold. Yep. Where did you meet your wife? She was my cousin's college roommate at Barnard, and that was how we met. And you met her in New York? I met her in New York. And then you went back to England? Then I went back to England, and she came to visit me, and I was coming back to visit her uh, with the idea that I would be here for a few weeks and then, then go back to, uh, to London. And at some point in that, we said, this is crazy. Let's just get married. And so we got married in City Hall, or oh, actually the municipal office building downtown in New York. We told our parents afterwards. I remember essentially calling up and saying, good news, you saved a lot of money on a wedding. Yeah, so her, uh, her parents uh, hate you as well. Uh, they did at that point. Yes. They were like, who is this guy? And he's only marrying you for a green card, right? Um, I think over the ensuing years, they decided that maybe I wasn't so bad after all. But at that time, they were But you know, most parents want to see their daughter married, um, not get a a telegram about it. Yeah, exactly. They don't want to get a phone call saying yeah. uh, uh, it's already happened, right? Um, okay. But having got married, uh, uh, um, and we got married January the 5th, 1984. And uh, she was going to complete her studies, graduate in May, and then the plan was we would move to London. Uh, I needed to go out and find work. I was legal to work, um, and I wanted to pay the rent, basically. But it turns out that if you tell potential employers, I'm only going to be in the country for, for five months, doesn't do much for your prospects. Mm -hmm. And the only job I could get was being a temporary paralegal. Okay. Uh, I, I never even heard of that position, temporary paralegal as opposed to paralegal. Yeah, so I worked for an agency Okay. Right. And in those days, this is a job that wouldn't exist anymore because now it'd be done by machines. But in those days, if you wanted to get ready for a deposition, let's say, in a lawsuit, the way you would do that would be have a team of people go through uh, a file of all the documents that might be relevant. It could be 100,000 pages, 150,000 pages, something like that, looking for terms. Uh, an exercise that today would be done by running right. search terms in a computer. But um, that was done by paralegals, and frequently it was done by 
temporary paralegals where the, the, the law firm would say, we have a lot of this work to do over the next few weeks or months. We don't want to hire people on permanently, but we'll call okay. up an agency. Okay, so you're basically there for discovery and yeah. through an agency. Okay, yep. I understand that. So um, then what happened? Oh, uh, well, I was a temporary, I, I went, turned out my first and only assignment was to a, a law firm called Fitzpatrick, Cella, Harper and Sinto, which turned out to be a, an IP firm, patent and trademark firm. And it was IP boutique. It was an IP boutique uh, at that point. Probably, and a very good one. Well, uh, a very good one. Um, and at that point, probably 30 or 40 lawyers, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went there and what was supposed to be a one week assignment. Uh, that turned into a seventeen-year uh, association with the law firm. And how did uh, did you did you have a science background? In uh, no, no, I just had a law background. And so you could have been doing trademarks. You could have been doing copyright. You can do patents. You ended up doing patents. How did that happen? Most of the work there was patents, mm-hmm. and uh, my job, by and large, was to organize files and, and also spend days on end going through these files, look, saying... Uh, I'm, I'm talking about now when you're an associate. Uh, when I, Well, they hired me on as an associate to do patent work, and, uh, um, and all I ever did was patent work. So I guess at that level, that's how did it Did they know out. you knew nothing about life sciences? They 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 knew uh, that uh, I think you could fairly say that they thought I was good at learning facts. I think they also thought I didn't know much about the law, and they were going to see how this would work out. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there are those who say to be a good patent person, you have to have been born and bred one, and uh, basically taken life sciences or something technical stuff in undergraduate school. Uh, so you have certainly showed that that's not the case, but are you just a very rare thing? I mean, would you only hire people who had full science backgrounds undergraduate? We, we do. We do not have a policy that we will only hire people with science backgrounds. Uh, what I would say typically is I'm perfectly happy to hire someone who has no science or engineering background, as long as that person convinces me that she or he is deeply interested in this and is not intimidated by complicated subject matter. Um, and, you know, typically, though, at least three quarters of the people that we hire do have some kind of science or engineering background. Okay. Um in terms of litigation, there are those who say, actually, I'm not, there's a lot of things you can do as a patent lawyer, but in terms of just hardcore litigation, uh, especially with juries, there's an advantage to not having a science background because you can put yourself in the position of the juror and, and start from the beginning going up. And if you've been doing this whole life, you really sort of start in the middle and go up. Is there anything to Some that? people certainly say that. I, I'm not sure that I agree with that. I, I very much agree with the premise that you need to be able to put yourself in the position of the listener. Um, I'm not sh- And certainly there are times when you find people whose own education complicates that because they take things for granted and don't can't step back and see that they're taking that for granted. But 
Um, but I see plenty of people who are who have science backgrounds who are perfectly good at doing that, and I also see people who lack science backgrounds who are bad at doing it. So uh, while there may be some association, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule there. I think more what you're looking for is someone who is able to empathize. Okay, and the so right now probably you know more life sciences stuff than almost anybody with all that you've done. I know a lot, but remember that because I do litigation, there's a time lag, right? That the science has to be done. It has to have worked its way through and probably resulted in a commercial product, which often takes a lot of years. And then the commercial product has to be successful enough that there's a pot of money worth fighting over. And so for typically the cases that I handle, the science underlying it was done um, you know, often 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that kind of thing. It's not that we never have a case. I actually do have a case right now about completely cutting edge science, but, uh, but often a lot of what we're, we're learning are things that were very new some while back, but now um, the science has moved on and people take this as, as you know, pretty established. Is there any stuff. distinct difference uh, of trying a patent case from the trying any other type of case or copyright trademarks or even non-IP, are there certain things about that that are simply different than them? I, I think um, in terms of trial technique, I don't think there's a difference at the level of technique. What I would say, though, is this, that part, part of what attracts people to the patent field is that it's a very, very complicated area of law. And unlike many civil cases, there's very often a trade-off. If you make this argument, it hurts you on that argument. And so it, there's far more complexity and interaction in it. And when you try a case, you have to be cognizant of that. And so while the techniques that you would use, I think, are the same as they would be in any trial, the, 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 you've got to be careful to not do something that will hurt you down the road, and that that tends to be a much more prominent feature of, of patent trial work. Uh, as opposed to um, a contract case. For okay, example. jurisdictions. Uh, Southern District of New York, Eastern District of New York, Central District of California, Northern District of Illinois, <clears throat> which I imagine you go there and get pretty savvy judges for the most part, as opposed to then out in the hinterlands. Or am I wrong? I think those ones you mentioned you would have pretty savvy judges. And I think also now because of the patent pilot program, you can have a, a more of an effect of the judges can pick that they want to do this. And so you don't end up with a judge who is unhappy about having been uh, assigned well, that's the a, case. That's a big advantage. It, it is a big advantage. Um, and I think, you know, you will certainly see in those jurisdictions that you mentioned judges that are very... Um, keen on patent cases, they like them, uh, and that's a good thing. You could, though, particularly in the larger ones like CD Cal or the Southern District of New York, you could end up, you know, if you've got 30 judges in a district, you could yeah. end up with someone who is not overjoyed about having this case. Is there a problem with the very experienced judges, in a, and your, the UK is an example of this, where you have fewer judges who basically hear almost all of the patent cases that first instance and in court of appeal, or most in the court of appeal, but, and certainly most. And 
that after a while, you know, I clerked for two judges, one in the Southern District, one in the Second Circuit, and the, the more the judge knows about an area, the less, the quicker the judge makes up his mind or her mind about it, and the less influence the advocate has. And I know in the UK, some people complained about some of the judges is, it was pretty much, you know, after the first day or something, it was clear the judge may have made up uh, his mind. It was very difficult to get him off. And I've actually spoken to some of them. They say that actually is an issue. Uh, so going back to this co country, would it be, is that, have you found that to be a problem in this country? I don't typically find it to be a problem. I mean, I'm certainly aware of that as a phenomenon that can take place sometimes. But, um, you know, to me, that would only be a problem to the extent that the judge was making up her or his mind and getting it wrong and being unwilling to reconsider. And um, I, I've had situations occasionally where I thought that had happened. I, I've had situations where I thought the judge was influenced by uh, the type of case it was or the, the identity of the parties, big and small, that kind of thing. Um, but but that's rare. I mean, mostly I think what you get is, look, I've also had situations where a judge appears to make a decision early on, but I think that's the right decision. And stepping back, if or, I were the or judge. Or just happened to be on your side. Or even where I was going to lose. I mean, often, yeah, okay. you know, one of the things that I try to do is if I lose a case at the time, I always have the view that, well, that's wrong because I've convinced that myself that I should win. Mm -hmm. but, but I try to look back at it after two or three years and say, how, what really is the right outcome there? And very often when you look at it, you can say, you know, dispassionately, if I were presented with this set of facts, that's the way I would come out with it, right? Mm -hmm. It's certainly not an unreasonable outcome. All right. Back in the day, and certainly when I started in IP, mm -hmm. uh, all of patent cases were basically non-jury now. Almost all of them are jury now. Is that right? If you have to, I think, take out the Hatch-Waxman cases, the yeah, other yeah, cases. Yeah, yeah, but if, yeah, you, yeah. if you take them out of the calculus, yeah. the overwhelming majority of jury cases. Now, you as an advocate, uh, if you could have all the cases, and this is the hypothetical, and you have to choose one or the other, all of your patent litigation would be before juries or all of it would be before uh, a judge in the district court. Uh, which would you choose? I, I'd choose juries. And why? Yeah. Um, partly that's a selfish decision. I mean, my, my view of the world is, as a trial lawyer is that trying a case to a jury is a more demanding, more challenging, and more rewarding task. And that it forces you to be better, that you have to make hard decisions about what issues you're going to present have to be on your game all the time. Modern jurors expect lawyers to be like people on TV. Right? And you've got to be uh, figure out how to tie everything back to themes. You've got to manage your time more rigorously. So all of these things make you a better courtroom lawyer. And that's part of it. And ultimately, do I think that juries get things wrong sometimes? Certainly. Do I think that they get them wrong more than judges. It's hard for me to say that. I mean, in, you know, when we get in this debate, which often happens with foreign lawyers who think the jury system is crazy for patent cases, I would say, well, okay, how many of you have had a decision where a judge ruled against you? And they always raise their hands. 
and say, and how many times did you think the judge was completely wrong or she or he had misunderstood something fundamental? They all say, yeah. Like, you know that because you get a reasoned decision. But the jury did that. You would say that it was just born of stupidity or misunderstanding, right? And when you look at the percentages, I, I have a hard time saying that judges reach the wrong decision more or less than juries, right? You know, that ultimately... Um, the other thing I would say about juries is that they're extremely good, and you know this, at figuring out when someone is not being forthright or when they're being spun, right? They may not know why, but they can say, this person yeah. is trying to convince me of something and I need to be skeptical. Yeah. And you don't need any degree of training to do that. You just, that's human beings are good at that. Uh, my experience of juries, they bring that to, to everything they do. and overwhelmingly, they try really, really hard. And um, I had a case uh, in Las Vegas. It was four years ago. Uh, why, why were you in Las Vegas? So the reason we were in Las Vegas, we were representing Garmin, the GPS company, which I've represented for a long time. And they had been sued by a what I could charitably call a non-practicing entity um, that had set itself up there's really one individual, and he had set himself up uh, in Las Vegas um, because he liked living there, and he wanted to cloak himself in the mantle of being a Nevada native. So the name of his his holding company, that was the particular one that was involved there, I think, was Silver State Intellectual Property, and he began his testimony with a what I thought was fairly cringeworthy. Um, uh, way to to tell the jury how much he loved Nevada and how he was a you know real Vegas guy. Uh, th that's why we were in Vegas. They had filed the lawsuit there, and uh, that's where it had stayed. Now, do you ever think in those situations, mm -hmm. uh, found a declaratory judgment action in a different venue just to avoid that? Uh, you know, very often there is uh, that kind of skirmish. Increasingly now, after the T.C. Hartman case, um, but. Uh, let me just, the, the reason I raised that case in Vegas was this, that it was um, the judge there allowed the jury to ask questions, had to do it in writing. And like many trial lawyers, I had never been a big fan of having the jury ask questions. Now here we had a jury uh, of, uh, I want to say it was 10 people, uh, might have been eight though. And um, a lot of, they worked incredibly hard. And one of the questions we got was this. After a patent has been granted, can it be revoked? If so, on what grounds? Sameness or similarity? You think about it, that's an awesome question. That's a real human being way of asking about what patent lawyers would call anticipation and obviousness. Mm. And I was just blown away by that question. Right? And, and it was one of a number that were like that, right? And to me, it was a real insight into these people are trying really, really hard to do the best job they can. And, you know, it didn't hurt that they came back with a complete defense verdict either. But now, you know. Uh, what percentage of cases do you win? Um, I don't keep track of the percentages, but I know it's gone down over time. And uh, one of my partners said to me, maybe it was last year, that he had realized that the days of sweeping all before us were over because people now only hire us for really hard cases. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, that's the irony. You know, I was, I was in, because uh, attorney's office in the Southern District and then at Dewey Valentine as a litigator. And uh, 
What I found is amazing how many, quote, litigators really don't want to go to trial and they really don't want to go to trial before a jury. They love the rest, you know, summary judgment, preliminary injunction, discovery motions. But, um, and I think one of the reasons is, there's a number of reasons, but one of them is, even if you were the best lawyer in the world and did the best job anyone could do, you could lose, and the rest of the world would just see that as a loss. Uh, yeah. Like a, you get a C in your report card, and you tell mom, dad, the teacher really, and no one believes it. And then the same thing, you know, if you lose that, that's on your report card. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you're going to do trial work, and um, I don't know that jury trial work is any more or less this way, but certainly people perceive it this way, uh, you're, you are going to put yourself in a position where you're very out there, you've invested in something very publicly, and you don't have a lot of control, you feel, over how it's going to be decided. So, um, you know, you could do the best job in the world, you could outlaw the other side and lose, right? And that's not actually that uncommon, right? And so you could um, do that. Uh, you know, what I see in that is that true trial lawyers tend to be superstitious. Almost all of them are superstitious. And that manifests itself. Give in, me an example of that. Yeah, I have a, a former partner who's a very accomplished trial lawyer, and he and I used to try cases together. Um, he has a superstition that when you go to court, um, every day you have to have the same position in the car that you had the first day you went to court. That So if, if he and I sat in the back, right? So I remember the way I learned this was we were going to court. We were trying a case in, uh, I think it was in, in Dallas. And we were riding to the courthouse in a huge SUV, probably a suburban. And he and I, the first day, got in and we sat in the way back. I had three rows of seats and we were in little cramped seats in the back. And then every day after that, he said, we've got to sit in the way back because if we don't, it'll be bad luck. Right? And, and that's symptomatic of the kind of superstition. Actually, that's a little scary, Nick, and, that story. Uh, well, okay. We end up winning the case. So, right. uh, uh, you know, I mean, maybe he was right. Uh, so, if you're trying to determine or tell someone about, they want to, they don't. I'm going into licensing. I'm going into obtaining a patent uh, or litigation. Or uh, what skills would you say to that person? You really should have or be able to develop if you are going to litigate. Um, well, I think or, or personality traits, whatever, however you want to describe it. I, I think ultimately, if you're going to be successful in the litigation business, you have to like telling stories. I mean, now, the stories have to be true if it's in the litigation context, but you have to like saying, how am I going to take this complicated body of information and make it interesting in some way? So one of the things that I'm fond of saying is, look, if I'm doing my job right, and um, let's say it's the opening, and I'm talking to the jury. If I stopped in mid-sentence, they should involuntarily lean forward slightly and think, I wonder what happened next. Right? And because that's the way it has to be presented. And so ultimately, uh, what I would say what is you need to have a, an interest in, in that. You need to like the facts. You need to like learning something complicated that has nothing to do with your life. 
and figuring it out and turning it around and saying, how am I going to work with this to get the outcome that is best for my client? Now, within that, the, the sort of tools of the trade, right? How to take a deposition or, you know, how, how to write a letter to the judge, those kind of things. You need to learn all of that too. But, you know, if you have the, uh, the intellect to do well in law school, you could certainly master those kind of things. How often, now you're at the very top, so this may not be a, a good test, but how often do you find a lawyer on the other side has the skills in a way that's really impressive? Uh, fairly often. I mean, I'm um, usually I'm in a fortunate position where I'm usually up against sophisticated adversaries who are very good lawyers, and frankly, that's one of the things that makes the work more satisfying. All right. Now you have won some really big cases and made ridiculous amount of money for your client. Uh, Maybe. So, what? Maybe. Right. No, I, I know for a fact because I've looked it up. Um, are you rich beyond belief? Um, I'm doing very nicely. I don't... Uh, you're, uh, you're comfortable. <laughs> well, I, I would say um, uh, I have made a lot more money than I ever thought I would. And, you know, look, again, one of the things I say, though, is different people define rich differently. And, and even people who really are rich often don't think of themselves that way, right? Because they're looking at whoever has more. But, you know, if you want to really make the kind of money where you don't have to work every day, right, then the practice of law probably isn't the right place to do that, right? That, you know, go in the financial services industry, um, you know, basically the ways to make that kind of money are either by selling something in large quantities or by what um, arbitrage, speculation mm. in some fashion, right? Uh, but, you know, those are the only ways that you can make money at, at that level. Now, you know, for a working stiff, I'm doing very nicely. Well, and this is, this is the difference between, first of all, do litigators make more money than other patent lawyers in the firm because of the nature of litigation? You know, I mean, uh, when I lived back in the world of IP boutiques, yeah. uh, the litigation side of the firm was regarded as the more profitable side. Often that meant that it had more clout within the law firm and the other practices like prosecution, trademark work, and so on were regarded as, as less so. Um, I suspect... Uh, Did you it, even view trademark lawyers as lawyers? I most certainly did, right? <laughs> I'm aware of, you know, a lot of people in the past who have said derogatory things, and basically they all boil down to, you know, the whole question is how close is too close, and that's it, right? You know, but you're a trademark lawyer. You know that there's a lot more to it than that, right? And also, um, if you're at a cocktail party, trademark lawyers are a lot more interesting than patent lawyers. Oh, I'll just tell the story. This the annual. It used to be patent groups stayed by themselves. Now they call themselves IP, and they do one. But in the days of which there was actually an annual meeting of the patent group with trademark or copyright, the patent people would be sitting there. No, there'd be some music and no one would be dancing and the wives would maybe speaking to each other or something but the copyright people really sometimes had string quartets and this other things and of course they weren't going to dance the trademark people had a band dancing fun 
really, you know, enjoying life more in the situation. But the again, that's not my, my well, let me, point. It, re it reminds me of something. Uh, when I was um, back at the Fitzpatrick farm, one of the things that uh, I would do from time to time was go off and do recruiting. Um, and we would go to law schools and typically there'd be three or four of us and we would speak to a room full of law students and we'd try and persuade them that what we did for a living was really awesome and that they should come and do it. And if you went with one of your trademark colleagues, you always lost out because he or she would turn up with a bunch of things, you know, from cases that they had had, right? And they would always be like, you know, it was very much like, you know, if you perform with a child or, or an animal, then you're going to be upstaged, right? It was like these people would show up and they had stuff that looked like fun and they could tell these great stories. And I would be, well, we had this awesome case about Section 112, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, so that's what I mean. As if you're you know, going to be at a cocktail party, make sure you stand next to the trademark lawyer. And by the way, just for the record, I consider myself a copyright lawyer who does trademarks, but I love them both. So the, uh, my fit, my experience actually is litigators are really a different type of people. Like, I feel I was born to it. I love the battle. I love it. I look forward to it. On trial, I'm like, it's like werewolf in London. This, this innocent person gets bitten, and all of a sudden, his ears, he can hear everything 10 miles away and everything else. And I just love it. Uh, but it's, I think the litigator's life is more difficult on scheduling, on stress, and a lot of things. And if you're not actually want to do that battle, it can be kind of an unhappy experience. Yeah, I think that's right. But people, and the further along you get with it, the more so that will be, right? So, uh, um, you know, that you have to be willing to travel a lot. You have to be willing to accept that you may not have control over your schedule. Um, if you do work for an international client base, you have, you're going to have phone calls at weird hours. Uh, if you um, and when you go to court, you know you, you. To me, trial is 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 the ultimate thing. It's you know it's the show, right? and that's what we live for, right? But you know, surprisingly to me, there are people who don't like the idea of working eighteen hours a day in a high stress environment. <laughs> right? Um. Okay, now, you happen to be in an area of the law that a lot of people think is currently in crisis, at least in the United States. Would you agree with that? Uh, you mean patent law as a whole or some subset of it? No, uh, uh, patent law as a whole. Um, I don't think it's in crisis. I mean, when people talk about that, usually what they're talking about is patent eligibility in Section 1. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. Right? And I think the law is uh, unsatisfying, unsatisfactory, and confused in, in that area. Um, but look, you know, that's a part of patent law. It's not the only <laughs> thing there is. And um, it, it doesn't... The forces that created that state of affairs did it in reaction to a set of other things, to a need that, that existed in the system. It may not be good where it is, but it's moving. Right? And moving in the right direction? I'm not sure if it's moving in the right direction, but it's moving. And you know, at some point, it will come to the right place. Right? And uh, so that's, that's how I would look at it. I don't see patent law as a whole being in a state of crisis. They do see that short-term fixes to 
or perceived fixes to underlying problems often create new problems. And so we have this kind of dialectical situation with patent law where it's certainly moving. And at some point, on any, at least in any given issue, it will reach equilibrium, but how long it takes to get there it's hard to predict. Right. Let, me, let me give you my view of uh, what's recently happened as a non-patent person. So I'm, I'm looking from the outside. Uh, it seemed to me for many, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit was specifically, and there's no doubt about this, created because regular judges were killing patent law. They thought everything was obvious, this to this to this. And we were going to have industries, incentives, all these things, something had to be done. And even someone like... Uh, uh, Ted Kennedy, one of the most liberal people, was in favor of creating the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, and uh, which was basically meant to correct that situation. And for, I don't know what, 12, 20, something amount of years, Supreme Court didn't even grant cert. Mm -hmm. But then, for whatever reason, and in the beginning, the Federal Circuit, would, people were picked in a way almost even if they weren't a patent lawyer, with sort of this in mind that we're art with our job is to do this. And that sort of, then you got people appointed who, you know, basically worked on this committee, this committee, and it had nothing to do with IP or something else. Like that. And you got uh, people who weren't as enamored of the idea that IP uh, or patents should be protected. And what you then had was the federal circuit splitting. And so, you had, who was on that panel was actually very important, perceived as what lawyer would get. In fact, that's why they didn't announce patents in advance, uh, panels in advance anymore, because they thought the lawyers were... Pandering. Yeah. And, uh, and then I think a couple of banks in which it went six, seven or something like that. And Supreme Court is, and the rest of the world is saying, on top of this... The rest of the world is saying there are a lot of bad patents. And this is because there's, there's software, there's bio, there's a uh, way to run a business. All these things are being rather new. There's no prior art, a lot of things. So the examiner has nothing to knock out this stuff. So what you're flooding now is there's a lot of bad patents. And it didn't seem like the system was interested in trying to correct it. And then you have Breyer in the Supreme Court, who has been an IP skeptic, not trademarks, but everything else, uh, dissenting from denial and cert, and finally said, okay, okay, okay. We'll, we'll grant cert, we'll try to do something, and gave him the case, uh, which the name of that case is? Which you're thinking of? The first one. Mayor? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, now, he writes, his prose was all Breyer, but then we're not overruling this, we're not overruling that, which the other judges are putting in justice and saying. So if you actually look at it, they thought they produced a fairly narrow thing. But if it's just someone out there in the, the world, it looked actually like it's pretty broad and it's going to knock out a lot of stuff. Um, and I don't think they would, that was the, the plan of the court. And the court, couple of other cases, it's having trouble correcting it. And I think right now it doesn't want to touch a patent case. And of course, Congress is useless in this type of thing because they have the whole industry has to agree for them to do something. So, and there's still something of a split. 
maybe not as much. So what is your view right now of you're appearing in a court of appeals for the federal circuit or you're on the outside wanting to make sure the law is righted. Is there any way you could do that? Um, I think if you left um, the Court of Appeals to itself, um, it would evolve a body of rules that would enable um, much better application of the principles in this area. Uh, I think you've got a problem which you see most sharply in the Athena case where oh, man. a lot of the court believes that its hands are tied. So, uh, so where we are with Athena, Athena is typical of these diagnostic cases. That so the, the Federal Circuit basically denied protection. Was that 2-1 yeah. or 3-0? It was... Uh, I thought it was 2-1. Maybe I'm wrong. I... I I think it was 2-1, but I, I actually don't remember. What okay. I remember was that there was then a request for rehearing on Bonk, the full court, to hear the, the case. And in July, that uh, the court denied that, voted 7-5, to five, the 12 active judges, not to take it, although all 12 of them agreed that the law was wrong. Oh, the... All right, go on. So we have this highly unusual um, cry for help that consists of eight separate opinions. Well, all 12 can't because you had a, at least two or three who said the law is that... No, they all say the law is wrong, or at least the law is bad, right? It should be different. The, the point of... Oh, all right. Now, uh, when you say the law, you're talking about the case law that's binding. So you have seven okay, judges saying okay, yeah. the law ought to be different, but we can't change it. Right. We're compelled by the Mayo case to reach this yeah. result. We have five other judges saying the law is wrong, we can change it. We're not compelled by the Mayo case, but you have 12 judges saying, in my opinion, the law is wrong. Yeah, but what I disagree with you on that is I think some of those seven mm -hmm. were using that as an excuse. They actually did not think the law was wrong and they actually would have reached that decision on their own. But it's easier to say, don't blame me on this, blame the, I, I the Supreme I think there's court. a gradation. In, I think when you come to the area of the life sciences. Um, a lot of the people who are very keen on the application of Section 101 to software patents are actually much less keen on it. Uh, uh, and, you know, the, the, it's hard to draw a conclusion other than that we have moved the law to a place where diagnostics are effectively unpatentable. And it, I don't think there's anyone on the court who would agree yeah, but, with that. But my view is this. In the past, the Federal Circuit didn't mind. I mean, if you look at Judge Rich, way back when, when it was CCPA, he told the Supreme Court, go screw themselves, when they remanded for reconsideration. And he said, no, this is wrong. I'm not that Supreme Court case. And we're still doing it. And then went up and the Supreme Court actually affirmed. So you used to have judges there who would say, you know, no, we're going to determine what it is. And if the Supreme Court wants to reverse us, they can reverse us. We have the expertise. And I I think it's not that they don't have the will. I actually think some of those judges are okay with this thing. But so you have two of my favorites who did what God intended, Judge Moore and Judge Newman, were in a group who said this decision was wrong. We should reverse it, right? Yeah, the, 
yeah. that they say we can change the law when our hands aren't tied. By yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think they all could have. And I, if there was a will, I think they would have. I just don't think, for some of at least, there was a will. Well, I think you've got to, there are certainly, there's certainly a constituency uh, on the court that thinks that 101 is doing very valuable duty. And um, not a, in cases like Athena, but in all the software cases where you've got a perceived set of problems with bad patents and that it's difficult to have a mechanism to weed out the bad things and 101 has become that. And um, you know, to me, you can't look at this area of the law without also taking into account the procedural pull for this to exist. And what I mean by that is that you, you can knock out a patent on a Rule 12 motion now, which was effectively impossible for, for decades. And what is Rule 12? It's a motion to dismiss, you know, at the beginning of the case before you would file a, a, an answer. So you get sued, um, you know, and, and part of the, a big part of the reason why the tech industry has dug in its heels so and said, we absolutely have to have this and the law is right, is because now if you get sued, you know, someone comes out of the woodwork and says, uh, hello, uh, Facebook, you're infringing my patent on such and such, right? Um, you get, uh, you can go to court and have a realistic chance of eliminating that at the very beginning before you have to spend millions of dollars on discovery and all of these things and go through it and then, you know, maybe knock it out on a summary judgment motion, right, uh, after a couple of years. And um, the system was lacking that uh, uh, that means to weed out bad cases early. And that's a big part of why this came into being. Well, a motion to dismiss historically has been considered ridiculous. And if a lawyer brought it, the judges would think there's something wrong with the law. I'm not talking about just in patents, no, but, but I, in the others. I don't think that that's so. I mean, I think, for example, there are many areas of the law where motion to dismiss is, is expected. It's a huge thing. Well, a motion to dismiss case. says that even... Uh, even if even if all this is right, you still lose. And yeah. that's going to be very, very rare. If a lawyer brings a case in which that can be said against it, it's just bad law. I, I don't think so, no. I mean, I think if you look at um, the, the private antitrust bar, right, where they're bringing often very creative antitrust cases, you look at the securities plaintiff's bar, things like that, those kind of cases where, um, you know, the, the, a lot of those cases are decided on the, uh, the Rule 12 stage, and that that's been true for a long time. Well, yeah, that's, that's what's, right. what right. is going on. It, right. Rule 12 is basically, if everything you, your party yeah. says is true, yeah. you still lose. It's been basically pushed up to some sort of you're wrong on the law. Which is not what the, the that was not the dismiss that was summary judgment or something else. So what has happened is the courts have. It's it's amazing actually how many cases you have on, uh, to dismiss, and I think they're responding to exactly what you're talking about. We've got to act sooner, right. uh, but it's it's not saying we're changing this to something that has more teeth than it ever had before. Absolutely, but but there's a systemic pull for that, yeah, right. And that's what I, I meant when I said, look, the system will evolve; it will respond to tensions, and and, and needs, right, uh, with developments which 
may then themselves create other problems. And that's exactly what we see with 101, that the reason for the emergence of this law is that we ended up with a whole lot of software patents um, within that there were good ones and bad ones, but when people sued on the bad ones, a very limited way to weed those things out. And so this evolved as that mechanism. And you know that um, it's hard for me to quarrel with the idea that there should be a mechanism for quality testing patent cases at the front end, just like any other case. Predictions, you say this is gonna, something is gonna happen, just let it roll and, and there'll be some solution, but you're not sure exactly what the solution is or, or what? I, I, I think that um, it's not clear to me that there will be legislation on this, right? Um, it's, I don't think there will be. I, I think in the short term, there won't be, right? Um, but in the medium term, there might be. Right? I think the Supreme Court may have no choice but to re-engage here. And I agree with you completely, they don't want to. But I don't know if you've read it, but the, the, there was a cert petition filed uh, within the last two weeks in the Athena case, which is frankly very powerful. And it basically says, um, uh, it's filed by Seth Waxman, a former Solicitor General. And it, it essentially says, you've created chaos here, you have to deal with it, right? And that this is unremittingly bad. Everyone agrees, you know, whatever else the, the judges of the Federal Circuit may disagree about, they agree that this is the wrong outcome. And um, they can't fix it, you have to. And by the way, it ends with uh, a little... Um, jab that I found funny, which says that uh, you were the people who created these three extra textual exceptions. Um, <laughs> um, wow. Right. So uh, you're the ones who ought to intervene to you make know, sure they're being applied properly. That's actually interesting because right. usually yeah. Solicitor General is trying to yeah. reach a result, but in the most non-controversial, pleasing way possible. The gloves are off on this I one. I think Seth uh, chose his words carefully there, right? Um, but it's, you know, calculated, I think, as a way of saying, look, you're responsible for this morass, right? Uh, um, someone's got to fix it, and realistically, it's got to be you. And try to say to the court, look, I know you don't want to, but, you know, if you just say we're going to wait another half decade, then um, you're causing problems uh, that have effects out in the real All world. All right, let's say... The court denies cert. Will any of those seven judges who said, we'll wait for the Supreme Court, say, well, we can't wait for them and we have to act on our own um, and join the five judges? Well, I, I, um, it depends, I think, on, on, on what cases come along. I think there will be cases where those seven do. I mean, and I, I think you know this, that I have a case right now in which the, there's a cert petition pending and the Supreme Court has asked for the views of the Solicitor General, which means it's, you know, statistically when they do that, there's a 50% chance they'll take it. Uh, we won in the federal circuit. So this is the Vander Pharmaceuticals case. the Vander case. case. But, you know, in the Vander case, the court, including Judge Laurie, for example, who's in that group of the seven that you mentioned. And Hughes might be in that group too. Right. And, you know, they said, look, Absolutely, we can deal with this, right? And so, so yeah. you know, on that case, it was an example of one where they didn't feel their hands were tied. Now, the circumstances and the facts of the case are different, right? Uh, but you will continue to see cases that come along and the court will continue to evolve 
Yeah. And and Prost, the chief judge, dissented. And she is someone, I think, who actually is okay with this. And and given, like here, um, uh, well, we don't have to go into that. That's, I, that's so I, I, far I don't want to, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I know I, you don't want to, you don't want to say anything about a particular judge, even though. But, but what I would say is this, I mean, and look, I was, you know, sitting next to, to Chief Judge Prost two, three days ago um, on a panel with her, right? And um, I have utmost respect for her, but I think that one of the things as chief, yeah, have a heightened sense of responsibility of how do I protect my court and not have it be put in a position of uh, where it, there's a poor relationship with the Supreme Court that doesn't work well for us. And I think that, um, I think in her tenure as chief, she's done a really good job under difficult circumstances of trying to improve that relationship. Well, no, I think actually she's a very good judge. And uh, I just think philosophically she's more on the Breyer side than she is on the, on the Newman Moore side. I could be wrong, but that's no, beside the point. You, could, you know, people like to sort of handicap this and say who's pro-patent and who's anti-patent. And, you know, you, you can do that. I said more on the side. Right, you know. but they're... Um, you know, uh, uh, I'll tell you that some judges yeah. on the federal circuit who would totally agree with me about what's going on. So right, but they might not agree with you on a podcast. No, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we're going to delete this whole section <laughs> right. so that Nick can actually continue to practice law. And uh, uh, all right, that we're we're getting to the point. Um. Oh, Congress. I don't think Congress is ever going to do it. I, let me, this, I think Congress does three things. Nothing which it does the best. Codifies <laughs> case law like fair use or codifies a business agreement like Section 11. This is all copyright. Cable and broadcast industry. First thing that I'll ask you come, come up, do you all agree? If you don't all agree, they're not interested. Why? Because the Senate rules are one person can stick up their hand. You need unanimous consent to take away the week-long debate and make it uh, like 16 hours. I don't know what the thing is. Mm -hmm. And unless you get unanimous consent, that bill won't even be brought forward, no matter how many people are for it. So you're in a situation where the Senate was created. This is outside the scope of this, but... But very interesting. Senate created a mechanism. It wasn't in the Constitution where it was dominated by Southern senators because there were no primaries or anything else. There were plantation owners who were in family after family member. And they were there to protect the South, which was a distinct commercial and every other way. Jim Crow laws, cotton, not industry, this or this. So they wanted to be able to stop anything where the rest of the United States was going to do something that would harm them, and they create all these rules about the law that they can stop anything that's going on. I don't think it's, it's good government, but we have it. And, but it makes it, the court is it. Court right. is king now. I, I think that's right. And I mean, also, I agree with what you just said about the historical background to this. I would, whether it's good government, you know, if you look at it in the context of uh, an economic expansion that went on for nearly two centuries, where the, um, 
I can, there is a school of thought and it can make some sense that having limiting the ability of government to mess with that was good as long as everything's getting, getting better year over year. What, you know, how bad can it be, right? But when you get to a place where the levels off or even starts to go into decline, then I think it's a real good problem systemically, right? And uh, whether, you know, that's a much bigger topic than anything we're talking about. But the, uh, um, I do agree that it, this type of law reform can only pass if every significant stakeholder says, okay, I'm a, I'll, I'll accept it. That's right. And as long as the tech industry says, hell no, which is what they're saying at the moment, it's not going to pass, right? And, you know, that's what we see in these hearings is that, um, you know, it's all well and good to, to find, you know, the group of people who think the law is terrible. But if you've also got another group of people who think it's just fine, then nothing's going to happen in Congress. Yeah. Okay, so is there, we have about a minute or two. Um, any final comments uh, would you like to make? Uh, I don't say it's the, uh, the podcast is awesome, just like the conference. Best, <laughs> best podcast in the universe. Uh, uh, I, I, I happen to agree, coincidentally. Anyway, Nick, thanks so much. It was great having you. Yeah. And uh, uh, good luck and everything. Oh, all right. We don't have time for it. But I was going to discuss this particularly weird practice of Nick of race car driving, risking his life. Uh, and, uh, but I know you enjoy it, and I hope it's as, as safe as anything else. Hugh, thank you very much, and it's been a pleasure. The pleasure is all ours. <laughs>